My name is Luke. If I haven't met you, I haven't met some of you yet, I can tell. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm teaching pastor, and uh, I'm excited to be here. It feels like it's been forever since I've stood up here. I traveled a little bit, and we swapped places with some other Acts 29 churches, which uh, I'm sure you can agree. We have a great network. Got some solid pastors in our network, but um, after preaching in front of those churches, I have to say I really missed mine. This is my favorite. So it's good to be back. Turn in your Bible to Galatians 4. Or in your app, flip to your app. If you're new um, or your, your time here has been spotty because of the holidays, which happens with everybody, um, we have been going through the book of Galatians. We started this last year, probably around October-ish, um, and we're actually kind of slipping down the, the hill on the last half of it. We find ourselves in the fourth chapter today. Um, while you're turning there, true story, a little bit of a freaky story, but definitely true, and I don't think I've ever told this. Um, publicly, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it. Um, whenever I was a young campus pastor, fresh enough in the face to be confused with a college student still, right? Very young, I think it was like 2001 or so, um, I was invited to speak at a campus ministry across the state of Texas. I was the director at Texas Tech. We had another um, director at a school, I cannot name its name. They wanted me to come in in his absence and speak, so I did. Now, I found out the, the hour directly before I was due to preach, there was a coven meeting across that same campus. Now, some of you don't know what a coven meeting is. Coven is a group of witches or warlocks um, that get together and they minister to each other and they take care of business, whatever witches and warlocks do. So they had a coven meeting that was across campus, and I thought, you know what would be fun? Let's crash it, right? Let's go in like undercover and crash it because that's my way of thinking back in 2001 I would not suggest doing this, okay? Um, but I had a young brother that I stuck in the car and brought with me, and that's because two years earlier, we had led him to the Lord. He was one of our very first converts in campus ministry, and he was a witch um, or a warlock. I don't know if it's male or female. I'm not quite sure. Um, but the thing was is he had a great apologetic for working with people who were caught up in witchcraft. Great apologetic for it. Written on it. Um, had written Bible studies for people. That, I mean, he was just very conversant with other witches and did a good job. I just kind of scratched my head. He did a great job, right? Um, and so I thought, hey, this young brother wants to be in the ministry. Let's shove him in the car and bring him. So we went. So we show up. The plan was he goes in early. I come in late. That way they don't know we're together, right? Brilliant, huh? So I come up to the door, and it was kind of this modified study lounge on this campus, which was a Christian campus, by the way. And as I touched the doorknob... I'm not lying. As I touched the doorknob, every hair on my body stood up on end. I felt nauseous. I got a headache. I had this oppressive feeling smack me in the face. It was real. <laughs> it was real. It was tangible. I could feel it. And when I walked in that room, it was dimly lit, of course, just like you'd imagine in the movies. And there was about 15 students, college students, all around in the circle. Um, and they were chanting, like in the movies. And they were casting spells on that campus, like in the movies. And so I showed up, and I, I sit down, and I look across the room, and there's my brother sitting there looking at me like, what? This is normal. This is familiar. He wasn't freaked out. I was probably pale. I bet my eyes were like this. 
this young woman stands up and she's the leader of that particular coven. Now my friend had been a, a leader of a couple covens in West Texas and was a prominent figure in the one on Texas Tech, which was 200 members large, right? So he knew about all this stuff and had led meetings like this. I had not. So I'm watching as this young woman says what we're going to do now, and she leads them on what we would consider astral projection, where they meet with the Spirit and get a message from the Spirit, right? So she's leading them. Everyone close your eyes. They all close their eyes. Eyes roll to the back of their head. She's talking to them. Imagine your color. Now you're meeting your color. Embrace your color. You're going to get a message from your color. And I'm thinking, color? <laughs> you say tomato, I say tomorrow. I don't know that I call that a color. I'm thinking green and yellow. I think that's a demon is what I'm thinking. But they're getting a message from this thing. Now, whenever they snapped out of it 15 minutes later, they started going in a circle and giving the message to the rest of the group that they had received from their color. And it was scary. It freaked me out, to be honest with you. And when it got to me, they said, look, we understand you're a visitor. It's probably new to you. So if you don't have a message, that's probably fine. I said, actually, I do have a message, but it's not. It's not from a color. Me and Green did not have a conversation. I have a message from the almighty living God who has a passion for you and a love and, and I preach the gospel basically. Preach the gospel to them. It got a little aggressive as you can imagine, right? Primarily between the young woman and me. She stood up. She tried to save the whole thing. She starts locking antlers with me, right? Got very aggressive, got more aggressive, more aggressive. And then eventually they started screaming at me, telling me to leave. And I'm thinking, whatever, i got to preach in 20 minutes either, so see ya. I walked out the door, I could hear them yelling at me. Now, I left my brother in the room, right? And he told me later on on the way home that they were devising a way to figure out who I was, what my name was, where my family lived, so that they can do proper spells over my family and my property and even leave things on my property. They were angry, right? And he said, you know what, I can't believe, I can't believe that he said those things, and they're like, yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't either. It's crazy. He didn't even know us. And he said, he said the same thing to me two years ago. And then he started preaching the gospel. Locks the whole meeting down right there, right? <laughs> Nobody dueled with him, right? I mean, he was famous enough in the States where they actually recognized his name once he introduced himself, right? Locks the whole meeting down. What we did not know was that there was an undercover reporter in that room that wrote the whole thing up in the newspaper the next day, front page, so I get a call from this college campus <laughs> the very next week saying, hey, that was bad. You shouldn't have done that. Um, we're expecting a public apology. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's not going to happen. You're not getting a public apology. So they banned me from life from this campus. I can't go back there, right? Interesting. True story, right? True story. I think we could all agree there were funky things going on in that room, Right? I think we can agree that behind the scenes, there were some crazy things at work. There were demonic forces, whatever you want to call them, evil principalities, right? Spiritual powers that were ruining lives. They were present. They were there, right? I don't think you could have convinced these college students of that, though, right? They thought it was all benign. They, hey, they were just serving each other and ministering to each other. I mean, it's yellow, they're talking to. How, how angry can yellow be? How intimidating is pink? That can't be a demon. But they had no idea what they were really messing with. They thought that they were only helping themselves, but they were enslaved. 
And, and I, I think we would all agree that we did not show up here today to worship demons, right? Can we agree on that? Anyone come here to worship a demon? Might be out of luck. We did not come here to do that today. But would you believe me if I said that there are some in this room and, and very well people that you know that worship an idol no worse, no different than maybe what these students were worshiping in that room? That maybe some people were enslaved in this room or maybe some friends you have that are just as enslaved as the folks were in this room on this campus. Would that freak you out if I said that? Would that trouble some of you if I said that? Listen, today I'm not going to talk about being possessed by a demon. I'm just going to tell you up front. That's a totally different sermon. But what I will say is that Paul is going to talk in our passage today about what it means to be enslaved to elementary principles, what it means to be enslaved to a spiritual force, to be enslaved, incapacitated, intoxicated, however you want to say it, overcome to something not God. And to be totally honest with you, if I can, Paul frightens me in this passage a little bit. A little bit of a frightening passage for a pastor, right? If you're kind of new to the story of Galatians or, or you're new to this church and haven't been with us as we've been tracking through the entire book, Galatians is virtually a story of Paul appealing and contending with some churches that he had already planted. He started these churches, knew a lot of the Christians, probably set the pastors in, baptized a lot of the people. But in his absence, sharp false teachers had come in and swooned them away from the gospel adding things, adding things like special days and special diets and circumcision and special baptisms, adding things to say, if you do these things on top of what Jesus did, then you'll be approved. Favor will really, really, really come if you do these extra things. And so the whole four chapters that we are on, right, well, up to this fourth chapter, Paul has been contending from this angle and then coming from this angle and using this tactic and reasoning and pointing and, and pleading and urging. And today he does no different, right? He does no different. We're going to jump in verse 8, which is where we need to pick it up from where we finished it last time we did this series. Verse 8, Paul says, and I will be pausing through this passage, formally... When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Okay, pause. I want you to remember that for the most part, these guys were not Jews. Galatians, for the most part, were not Jews, right? So they're normal growing up, didn't have things like laws to follow or rules to obey or performance or shame-based obedience. That wasn't part of their reality. They, they were pagan idol worshipers. I mean, that, that scene I just explained, that probably would have been a very normal thing for them to see. They probably would not have been as wide-eyed as I was. They served false gods, which is, in fact, serving yourself, by the way. Serving a false god and worshiping an idol, being enslaved to an elementary principle, is the same thing as worshiping yourself. See, these Galatians, they didn't follow false gods and idols because they loved them. They didn't do it because this idol had given them grace or lived the perfect life, died, and then rose again for them. That's not why they did it. They did it because they didn't want to lose what they had, and they wanted to get stuff they didn't have. They served those gods so the gods would serve them, right? If they were infertile and needed kids, they would find the god of fertility, and they would put a, an offering, a propitiation, a propitious offering out there to serve that god. That way they could have babies. If you needed crops... You find the God of crops. War, 
You served and made offerings to a god of war. You wanted to travel? It goes on and on and on and on, like patron saints almost a little bit, right? Now, they did these things so that they could get or not lose. They worshiped. The fuel in their worship was to not be damaged by gods or not to lose the possessions they had or to gain something that they really, really wanted and they thought was locked up and serving this god. Therefore, they were serving themselves by any kind of worship or sacrifice they could give. It's important to know that. The ultimate God in their belief system before Paul found them and God rescued them was themselves. Chief God was self. Okay, verse 9. Picking it back up. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? I mean, Paul... Paul is asking the same question all of us would ask if we were there. You mean to tell me that you guys who were heavily pursued by God were broken free from this horrible power, broken free from all of the slavery that you were in, all these weak and worthless idols, and now you want to go back involuntarily enslave yourselves again to idols? Is that what's going on? He's frustrated. We'd be frustrated too. You know, Christianity. Christianity largely is God rescuing us from our idols. God rescuing us from our idols who have intoxicated us and fascinated us. Right? But what do we do? What is the human heart's response to such a rescue attempt if it's not crying and whining and longing for those idols again? I do it. We all do it. Right? Let's look at a passage. Very indicting passage in Numbers 11. Okay, so what's going on right here? In a nutshell, God had just miraculously freed his chosen nation, Israel. But I want you to think about how miraculous this emancipation really was. It was a miracle that Pharaoh let them go. It was a miracle that on the way out the door, they're all throwing gold and money and possessions to this, what used to be a slave nation. It was a miracle, and with style points, that God breaks open an ocean that they can walk through and it all back in. That was a miracle. They get thirsty, boom. Moses hits a rock, water comes out, done. They're hungry, boom. Manna comes down from heaven and they all eat. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle where God emancipates and frees them from what? Enslaving taskmasters. This is what they do. Verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now, our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Wow. It seems a little rose-colored to me. They didn't get anything for free. No, no meat every night. They didn't get fish for free. They got beatings and 4 a.m. wake-up calls so they could work all day without any food and tortured and families split up. They were enslaved. But look what idols do to us. They convince us that the payoff was big when it never ever delivered. It's like we have spiritual amnesia. It's like we're convinced that things were better than they really were. And they're not. 
It's like we remember things that never even happened. And listen, we can't look down our nose to these people saying this in numbers. That is us, friends. We are them. That's me. Stupid Moses. We were fine before he found us, right? I remember when all my relationships were self-focused and selfish and it were all about me. That was the day back then. Back when I was locked up in perversion and addiction, I was living a life, you know? That's us in there. Let me ask you, what are your leeks and onions? What is your version of that? What is it that God freed you from miraculously that your heart desperately longs to go back to? What is it? Think hard. Some of you don't have to think that hard. Think honestly. I'll say that. Think honestly. It's a tough one for me. I've been asking myself this all week. I don't like what I'm hearing. See, I was saved, like many of you, from selfish independence. I like to be independent. I didn't like to be connected to people. I didn't like study groups in college because I thought I was smarter than everybody. I didn't like being around my family because they were boring. I like to be, I just like to be all about myself. I was fascinated with myself. Anyone in here like that? It was me. And I wanted to protect my image at all costs. That's why you would never hear me tell the truth. That's why I'd never open my life up because I was trying to protect my image and I wanted to hoard my time and I'll hoard my talents and my treasures. No one was getting any of that. But guess what God went and did? He rescued me from that. And what does he do? He rescues me into a community where now I'm connected. Now I'm not disembodied. I'm with a body. And not only do I have brothers telling me stuff that are making me mad, I've got pastors actually stepping into my life and telling me things I don't want to hear. Right? I didn't say you could tell me that. Do we like know each other all of a sudden? I don't think you could talk to me like that, even though you're totally right. Even though that makes a lot of sense. I don't like it. You want my money? Oh, I knew it. You always want my money. All those churches just want my money. What is that if that is not our heart longing for those idols? Longing to secure and hoard and protect. That's what my heart does. I'll be honest with you, totally honest. That's what my heart still wants to do. There's st- Listen, I love community most days. Most days. Some days it's a struggle. I love to invest. I love to invest money in crazy places, into people when I mean that. I love to invest in places that whether I get a return or not doesn't even matter. I just love what God is doing in the moment most of the time. But the times I struggle are those moments where the flesh and the craving in me want to go back to that idol. If I'm just being real with you. We're saved from lust as people into a, a pure life. Yet don't we want to cut a deal with lust? I'll indulge you if you don't expose me. We can do this little partnership, a functional one, right? We're, we're rescued out of unforgiveness as a, as a captor into a life of forgiveness, but don't we kind of want to slip back there? Yeah, but I want to have unforgiveness against that person. I'm justified to hold on to a little bit of bitterness and anger. That's a tough one for me. And how can you tell if you have an idol? How can you tell if this is going on in your life? I'll tell you a quick way quick way is you get nervous when people start talking about it. You get nervous when a friend or a pastor starts to speak to you because we don't like to always hear the truth and we hate it when people start messing with our idols. We don't like it, right? We revolt. You see, the gospel, 
the story of a living, dying, and living again God for us, a king. The gospel, if anything, tears the idols out of us. And that surgery, friends, hurts, doesn't it? That scalpel hits the skin, we reflex immediately. I do. Immediate revolt. Immediate revolt. It hurts. I think biblical teaching, the more I read the Bible, the more I study it, I think biblical teaching is not always going to feel awesome because it approaches and touches the idols. As a pastor, right, I think I'm in my 16th or 17th year now of pastoring, I've learned over the years which passages I could preach and I can get heads to nod. Not that you're fish or lemmings or lambs or anything like that. It's just that it's easy. Some of these things are easy to listen to. And I'll preach it and you'll help me preach it. You'll nod the heads and you'll be like, yeah, go baby, taking notes, check it out. I'm liking it, but I know which passages to hit where all the heads stop nodding. Er, Because I'm touching things. Idols, I'm moving them all around. And it hurts. I know enough to tickle your ears, but tickling your ears will never tear away an idol. Tickling your ears will never tear away an idol. It might tickle your ears if I teach you some cute steps on how to manage your idols, how to be a victim in the eyes of your, vi- your, your idols, how to keep them and cut partnerships with them. But as soon as I tell you to kill it, as soon as I tell you to plunge a knife in it and put it down and it will never come back, you will want to revolt. You'll want to revolt against the truth. You'll want to revolt against me, right? That's true. Now here is where Paul shifts gears and puts this text squarely in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is where he brings it to us. Verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Now that's a strange piece of passage right there. He switched gears. Some of you caught it. Originally, he was talking to them about idols, like weird, creepy, freaky things that they were doing. And now he's talking about law, observing festivals and days and moons and seasons. What's he doing? What's he doing? He's doing this. He's saying, hey, you guys were freed from serving and being enslaved to stupid idols. Jesus freed you from that. And now of your own volition, you're going back to law, to performance, to obedience? It's just another idol. In fact, it's the same idol. The idols are the same. They're just in different clothing. You've taken your idols out of sleazy clothes and you've put them in church clothes. Now they're in khakis. But it's the same idol. It's the same idol. So now instead of doing weird and creepy things in order to serve yourself and please God, now you're doing festivals and circumcisions in order to please yourself and please God. But it's the same thing. It's the same. In both cases, in both cases, they were saying that Jesus is not enough, so I must add. His doing was not good enough, so I must do. I must control my own cleanliness. I must justify myself because what Jesus did simply is just not that good. It might have been good, but just to get me started, I've got to amplify it. That's what they're doing. And that discredits the work of Jesus. And this was a problem we had with Galatia, problem we had with Colossae, problem we had with Corinthians, and this is a problem he has with Knoxville, if I could just be honest with you. If the Bible was still being written, and there was a book called Knoxvillations, this made that up. <laughs> but if he did, would this passage not be in there? Would this not be in there? You observe days and months and seasons and years. You guys get up, you get dressed, you go to church. Why? Because it's Christmas. Because my kid's getting dedicated. Because it's baptism time. 
because we're supposed to go, because my parents are in town, because it's just time to go to church. It's the religious thing we do. That's on the list. I'm supposed to do it. And if I really want to please God, I'll put an envelope in the can on the way out the door, right? That's what we do. That is Knoxville. It's Knoxville. Here's the thing. I need to say this or else someone will text the question in. There is nothing inherently wrong with a Sabbath and a festival day. Okay. There's nothing. Nothing wrong with it. If you want to celebrate Christmas, do it. If you don't want to celebrate Christmas, don't. Just be convinced of it, right? We have a passage that leads us really well here in Romans 14. It'll be up on the screen, so we're moving fast. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So just simply be convinced. Be convinced. Can you do it to the glory of God? Have fun, do it. But if you're convicted not to do it, can you abstain to the glory of God? Then do it. Then abstain. I will be honest, festivals are fun, aren't they? Festivals are fun. Special days are a lot of fun. But they don't give you more approval or grace from God. They don't bring that. God doesn't approve of you more or bring more favor to your doorstep if your Christmas tree is bigger than everybody else's, right? Or you celebrate Yom Kippur, whatever that even looks like. You don't get more grace for that or anything else. And this we talk about as often as we can here. God does not give you a fist bump if you put a fish on your car while Caleb is blasting, right? And you're letting people pass just because you want to please God that day, right? Your credit rating with God does not rise because you never miss a time at church gatherings where the door is open or you immediately plug into a missional community. That doesn't improve your, your measurement before God. Neither does being a deacon or a pastor or a church planter. None of those, none of those things affect your magnitude, your value, your grace, and the favor you have before God. Why, Luke? It seems like it should. Because those are things that you do. Value comes by things that Jesus did, not by things that we do. Now, let me qualify a couple things, because this is where some people, I think a lot of people get confused. This is where I got confused for a long time. I happen to like church attendance. I like, I like, I like it when you guys show up. I like to show up to churches when I'm not. Pre- I think gatherings are important. I know it's this crazy mathematical equation we can't crack. It turns out that the more we all gather together as a church and go over the word and worship together and do fellow, it just, it's amazing, but we grow. I can't explain it. It just happens but we grow, and I'm all for it. But listen, community and gathering around, it, it builds me. It doesn't measure me. It builds me. It does not measure me. Now, if I stop going, let's say I start showing up to like one out of ten things. I'm just blowing it off. It's still my value before God. It measures my obedience. It measures how deep that gospel fracture is in my life. It measures where I believe God and where that belief stops but it does not measure my value before God. Let's take the Sabbath, right? I love the Sabbath. I love the Sabbath. I need Sabbath days. I need Sabbath moments because they serve me. They build me. 
it's good for me to follow Jesus as he brought us a better Sabbath. You guys know that's why that's in the Bible, right? The real Sabbath is what Jesus won us through the cross. That is the moment where man stops striving, we stop working, and we start resting in God. See, previously, we were striving and working to reach God. Now we are able to rest in God. We are in, as Christians, as the body of God, in God's Sabbath. But the Sabbath is useful for us. It serves. I get reset. I can focus on the Lord. I can rest in God. I can find that place that I enjoy so much. In a life of confusion and in a life of busyness, I need that time. But let me be honest. It builds me and serves me. It does not measure me. It does not measure me. Now, if I just choose that I don't need rest in God, it measures my obedience, my lack of, but it doesn't measure my value. I'm doing as much as I can to make this clear. If you struggle with community, and you struggle with attendance, and you struggle with resting in God, this is what God would have you do. He would have you act. He would have you do things. He would have you change. He would have you alter your course. But that is to build you, not to add value to you. That's already happened. Christ has already added value to you. So Luke, are you saying that I don't need to show up to church? I'm saying you don't have to in order to be more important to God. He doesn't like you more because you do, right? But Luke, so are you saying it's not important if I come? I'm saying it's of dire importance that you come because it builds you. I love the community group that I'm in that is on mission to Knoxville. I love walking alongside these families. We don't do it perfect. We do the best we can, and that's part of the beauty for me, right? Because it exposes my heart. They minister to me. They encourage me. It builds me. I love it. Right? But just because I do that and do it often, God does not like me more. Okay? That's what I'm trying to get across. Now, here is the thing. Hear me clearly. Very clearly. If you treat any performance or act like God is going to like you more if you do it or don't do it, if you treat it like that, you are returning into slavery. You're returning to slavery, just like Paul is addressing here with the Galatians. And friends, that idol of self-justification, that idol of cleaning yourself, that has spiritual implications to it, spiritual forces and backing to it. It does. I just said that. I just said that. Luke, are you saying that, that if I'm just being religious all the time, that I'm being enslaved? Is that what you're saying? Paul is saying it. I'm repeating it. I'm repeating this. See if I'm not right in this, if I say this is exactly what happens at Easter and Christmas and Mother's Day and baptism. Is this not what happens when churches have to get more chairs out, when churches have to send people into the, the parking lot to direct traffic because all of a sudden there's cars out of nowhere and there's people that you've never even seen before sitting here. What is happening if that is not exactly what's going on right here? I need to show up on this day so I'm cool with the man upstairs. It's being enslaved. It's in, that's exactly what we're, what we're dealing with. But Luke, it doesn't feel like I'm enslaved. I don't feel enslaved. Well, go back with me in time. Now you're walking out of this room on this campus with me, right? And your face is like mine. It's all pale, eyes wide. We're like oh, mumbling to ourselves, you know. We're, we're praying like extra hard. We didn't want that stuff to stick on us or whatever. We don't know what's going on. <laughs> and what if we saw a young student about to walk into that room? Would we not stop them and say, hey, listen, you don't want to go in there. There's like devils in there. There's devils in there. They're going to say it's a color. But we both know it's devils, right? Would you not do that? 
You would. You'd say, hey, hey, danger. There's danger in there. Well, no more danger than what we deal with whenever we try to impress God with our own religious practice items. No more danger than that. It's just as dangerous. It just doesn't feel like it. One is done in the dark, and one is done on church every Sunday morning. And some of you are falling into the trap of it. Some of you are falling into the trap of this. It's frightening to Paul. It's frightening to me. All over Knoxville today. There are close to 1,000, there are just over 800 gathered bodies that call today Church Day all over the Knoxville metro area. Almost 1,000. Over 800. I'll just say that. They're going to be singing a lot of the same songs, looking through the same Bible. We're going to be doing a lot of the same things. What's frightening is that not everybody is worshiping God under the banner of Christianity in a place where there's a Christian name on the front. They're not all worshiping God. Some of us are worshiping idols and therefore are enslaved by the demons that are hiding behind them, serving ourselves. This is tough. This is how he finishes it. Let's look at verse 11 and let him take it home. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Hey, just for free, not like this has anything to do with what we're talking about today. That is the one passage right there that leads a lot of scholars to believe that that thorn in Paul's flesh that he mentions in 2 Corinthians was an eye problem. was an eye problem because he's talking about, hey, you guys would have even traded eyes with me. That was a big difficulty to you. I, I don't know if I believe that or not. It doesn't really matter. It is interesting that he was stoned, though right? People don't aim for your knees when they stone you unless they're a bad shot, right? They're aiming for your head. It's possible he caught one right in the kisser, caught one right in the eye, and it caused an eye problem. So anyway, like I said, it doesn't cost anything. You can leave that at the door if you don't like it. I'm just, I'm interested in that kind of thing. So verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again, again, in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You kind of feel this text as much as you read it. He's perplexed. He's in anguish, right? I can understand that. I can relate to this. Watching people go backward. Such a good start. And then they return back to false idols. They leave meth and they pick up law. They live in a, an adulterous lifestyle and then they pick up some weird little thing that they can't get their mind, that they just can't shut up about. And it's like more important than Jesus to them. I've seen it. It's disheartening. It's heartrending. And this explains the church's problem. This explains Paul's problem with them. I'll say that. But what is their problem with Paul? It says right there in verse 16. Look at verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They have a problem with Paul because he's telling the truth. 
Boy, this isn't anything new under the sun. This is what he tells Timothy in Timothy 4. He says, preach the word. I mean, preach the truth. Preach the gospel. Preach Jesus. Preach the word. Do it in season and out of season. Reprove people, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. Ooh, that's frightening, isn't it? That's frightening. Listen, there are some hard moments in this room. I know enough of you I know enough of your real-life situations to know there are some real hard moments in this room. Fears, temptations, unbelief, crisis. Some of you are scared. Some of you are angry. Don't you want me to tell me? Be honest. Don't you want me to just say things that will make you feel like you can do something small and everything will go away? All the madness will just stop? Don't you want me to tell you to just go buy a book? Take a Sabbath? Go on this fast? Don't you want me to tell you that if you just do some things or stop doing some things, all the madness just stops? I want to hear myself say that because I think we'll do it. I think we'll do it. And listen, sometimes it does stop. Sometimes the madness does stop. And listen, sometimes it does not. Sometimes the madness perseveres. And sometimes, many times, days, weeks, months, seasons, all you will know is pain and crying and agony. That is all you'll know. Just as, as King David said, tears have become my food. I'm soaking my bed with tears. And this is the beauty of the gospel the whole time. Not that God not that God will bring you what your flesh craves. The gospel and the truth of the gospel is that God is there with you at all times regardless of your circumstances. Regardless of whether everything is going great or everything just stinks. God is there, He is real, and He is enough. That is the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, is not that you will always have a promising career and that your marriage is always going to flourish. And that all of your friends are always going to sink perfectly. That's not the truth of the gospel. Because a lot of times, friends, that's just not the truth. I've spoken with three or four people today that are just feeling kind of, I don't know, just kind of separate from everybody. They're feeling like they can't really connect like they used to. It's hard. We have seasons like that. The truth and the beauty of the gospel is that God is there all the time. Whether you are loving your life or whether you are hating your life, God is present. God is enough. God is sufficient for us. That is the beauty and the truth. He's good. If the crisis is hard, he's good. If the crisis is deep, he's there and he's good. If the crisis is long, he is sufficient. If it endures, he is perfect. He is there. He is good. That's the truth. But the thing is, is we struggle with this truth. We have to have more to the truth for us. Our ears start itching, don't they? Luke, Luke, I know that. I know that God's there. I know he's sufficient, but give me something to do. <laughs> Give me something to do so I can feel better in God's eyes. Let me get my hands dirty. Not so, not, not so that I can, you know, mimic what God has done for me. I don't want to do things for God because he's already done something for me. I want to do things for God so that he will do something for me. Luke, give me something to do that he will do for me. 
Give me something to do so that he won't take away from me. And whenever we get like that, we become a Galatian. That's what they're doing. They're serving gods in a way of serving themselves so that things will not be taken away and so that some things will be added to them. And we can serve God the exact same way because we too, we have ears that itch. The truth is, is this message of the gospel being sufficient and God being enough for you, it turns people away. It turns people away. We've had people even leave Legacy Church. Lots of good gospel-centered churches have had people walk right out the door because they don't get enough of, okay, here's a list of ten things. This is what you should do. And then you walk out of the room thinking the whole time, I feel really better about myself, a whole lot better, because now I know what I must do. Instead of being amazed at, look what God has done. I have failed you as a pastor if you walk out of here thinking, now I must do. I have failed you as a pastor if that's what you do. If you walk out of here and you think, look what God has done, then we've succeeded at teaching. We've succeeded in preaching. Because we do things because of what God has already done. That's what Christianity is, right? But it does turn people off. It is a hard truth. It offends people. It rips away idols. And when you tell people the same truth, it will turn them off too. It will turn them off. Let me ask you a couple questions and then we'll finish. Why? And think, don't be so quick. You're going to give me the Sunday school answer as soon as I ask this. Refrain. Why are you worshiping God? Why do you worship God? What demands do you have on your worship? What I mean is this. Where, what, what is the squeal point? You know, that's, that's the financial language, but what is the squeal point for you? At what point do you say, God, if you take this, 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 and this from me, serving and worshiping you becomes a little less worth it? What if you got maimed in a car accident and lost your limbs? What if your marriage blew up? What if you lost your kids? What if you lost your job? At what point do you turn on God and say, you're not worth it? Everyone's got something that looks a little bit like that. Let me tell you what you have found whenever you know the answer to that question. You've found an idol. You've found the real reason you're worshiping God right there in front of you. You might be enslaved to an elementary principle of this world that you were already won from. You're already busted out of that jail and you're voluntarily going back to serve it all over again. That's what Paul is saying. Here's another question. Where and when do you feel people messing with your idols? Where does that happen? When do you get nervous, right? Whenever the truth is preached to you and you feel your leeks and onions being pulled out of your basket, what is that truth? What are your leeks and onions? What truth is preached when you have some immediate revolt in your heart, when someone touches it? Do you not know? Have you ever asked God? Have you ever had the courage to ask God to show you what your idols are? This is the crazy thing that happens. Ask God to show you what your idols are and then watch how quick your spouse points it out. (laughs) Watch how quickly someone in community steps into your life and says, hey, I noticed that you talk about this a whole lot. Like 10 to 1 for how excited you are to God. Is, Is this an idol? Watch how quickly you try to explain it. I've had this happen to me before. I've had it happen where I had an idol in my life. 
and someone touched it, and I immediately tried to explain it. We love to do, that's us protecting it. We protect that thing. Oh, no, 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 that's mine. That's mine. I've got a little deal worked out. What is it for you? And have you been asking the people that you're in community with? The folks that you're doing life with, eating lunch with, in living rooms with, on mission with, are you asking them, hey, will you tell me? I mean, you would tell me, right? I mean, you've known me long enough. Do you, do you, is there something stirring around? Do you see something? And will you have the courage to answer someone when they ask you the same thing? Idle hunting, it's a life-changing business, right? 